Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is one of the nation's leading defense acquisition thinkers, Dr. Jerry McGinn, a soldier scholar who is the executive director of the Center for Government Contracting in the School of Business at George Mason University, otherwise known as the Baroni Center. Uh, he has served in the Pentagon's Office of Manufacturing and Industrial-Based Policy, where he was the deputy, uh, and he is here today to discuss uh, the new report he co-authored with visiting fellow Mike Roche, a build allied approach to increase industrial base capacity, uh, which is now out. Jerry, thanks so very much for joining us in Terrific Report. Great. Well, it's great to be back with you, Vago. Uh, an absolute pleasure. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by HII. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Uh, Jerry, uh, you and I, for like as long as we've known each other, I've talked about the importance of a build allied uh, approach uh, that, you know, whenever you go to buy American or buy European, it, it ends up becoming very, very problematic because everybody's reinventing wheels. They, they shouldn't be uh, uh, reinventing. Walk us through the key takeaways of your report, because you guys are actually trying to set the foundation for what a um, alliance wide industrial collaboration architecture looks like. Yeah, no, thanks, Vago. Yeah, so the, the intent of this report is you know, there's been a lot of in talk in, in, you know, not this administration, previous administrations about partnering with allies and partners. You know, um, if you look at the current national defense strategy, it references allies and partners 32 times. But what we need to do is get really kind of granular on what that means and how we can really do that. Um, and that's why we wrote this report, because, you know, the situation in Ukraine, uh, as well as in, um, in the war, war game scenarios in Taiwan show kind of, you know, what we have on the, on the shelves and what we're producing ain't enough, right? So we need more capacity. Uh, and I think there's a way that we can do this by building overall global capacity among our partners and allies, because we're building a lot of the same things. We have a lot of the same technologies. And so that was the intent of the report. Um, so, and, and, and really, standardization can be uh, your savior, right? Whether on artillery, NATO has common standards so that everybody's bullets can go into everybody's guns. And even then, uh, we, we have uh, some shortcomings in that department, right? even with standardization bodies. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what we did in the report is we we looked at nine kind of case studies, nine programs. I mean, big programs like MRAP and F-35, bilateral efforts like Next Generation Jammer, uh, and then NATO efforts like NATO Air Ground, Alliance Ground Surveillance and uh, NATO Tanker and uh, Sea Sparrow. And we looked at, you know, where have we done this industrial or are we doing this international industrial collaboration? What works? What are the enablers of it? What are the obstacles to further to further efforts? And then we make a series of recommendations. Um, and um, so and those bu those recommendations are around four big buckets. Um, the first is, you know, that we really need to make um, an, an international industrial collaboration a core uh, part of the defense acquisition system. And it's already there. I mean, it's already, you know, it, you know, these things are not hindered, but it's not the have the prioritization that it could have and should have in my argument. And so I'll make a series of recommendations on that. Um, the second is the area 
of, you know, there are some real obstacles, particularly in te technology transfer that need to be overcome to really get us where we need to go. Um, export controls is often used, I think, as a crutch um, for, you know, not doing what needs to be done. But in this case, in the case of the AUKUS, the Australia-UK-US uh, partnership, uh, we really do need export control um, action. And um, and there are areas to technology security and foreign disclosure um, where we also need to address that. The third area of recommendations is around, we really have to do a better job talking on, and um, about how much this international industrial collaboration actually impacts the U.S. industrial base. Um, you know, it's not well known that, you know, that the amount of direct economic impact that um, not U.S. subsidiaries of foreign-owned companies have on the U.S. industrial base, um, you know, and that just un understanding that the thousands of jobs, the direct uh, economic impact, will I think help um, mitigate some of these concerns about um, you know by America. So there's plenty of work that needs to be done, and the focus needs to be on um, getting out of uh, getting out of dependencies with China. And uh, and so I think we can do that by getting more kind of a uh, better understanding of of that overall impact. And then the final thing is there are some efforts we need to scale um, or get better, um, and it's particularly around how do we do exportability and the like. And so. Um, anyway, so th that's what we do in the report and make a series of recommendations. I'm happy to drive into any of those um, as you would like. But before we get, you know, you, you mentioned by America. I mean, obviously, it's considered the last refuge uh, of the scoundrel, indeed, uh, on either side of the uh, Atlantic. Um, but at the end of the day, there's also legitimate areas where nations uh, right. I mean, uh, the, uh, the defense yep. industrial strategy Absolutely. Britain had about 15 years ago was the wisest one. Be clear about what it is you're willing to cooperate on and what not. And, and then everybody sort of understands it and don't make it capricious. In our case, it can be a little bit on the capricious side. What are yep. what falls into the legitimate area where it, it's OK for countries to protect and where not? Right. Because I think at the end of the day, free trade is very important in this ecosystem ultimately. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, that's a, it's a very good point. I mean, I think we, U.S. and other countries, you have to, have to define what are your critical national capabilities um, that you need to have access to. Uh, and, you know, both the Trump administration and the Biden administration have done kind of whole government reviews looking at these issues. Uh, and it's in, and that's where a lot of the investment has gone um, in terms of uh, the Defense Production Act and similar kind of uh, programs to uh, build capacity for rare earth kind of processing, kind of transition that out of China, uh, develop, redevelop, and this is where the chips investment comes in, uh, redevelop kind of microelectronics capacity. And, and so, but it's, you know, we can't do everything. You can't you can't build by America only or build America only. So you, because there's just you know there's just not uh, and uh, you know there you know but it's prioritizing what are the things that absolutely you need to have some domestic access to, uh, and it's a pretty it's a pretty small list. And and then once you have that, then you say well there's capabilities that. You know, we need to get out of China, but, you know, they may be just as well being in Canada or Australia. And this is where you can friend shore, near shore kind of capabilities as well. 
Um, let me uh, take you to where we are uh, right now and the importance of collaborating as allies and partners. We are all running out of ammunition. One of the reasons we're giving cluster munitions to Kiev is Ukraine asked for them. But on the other hand, we're also running out of 155 uh, bullets uh, right. to give them, uh, right. which is uh, you know very worrying. Obviously, we're making a massive investment in Doug Bush, uh, the Army Acquisition uh, Executive, and one of your uh, West Point uh, co colleagues, uh, and yep. one-time congressional colleague uh, as well. Are you guys the same class? No, he's a he's a few years uh, after I graduated. Yes. Okay. I'm um, sorry. I just wanted to clear that up for anybody in the audience who was wondering about that. Um, you know, has been working this problem. And now we've got a lot of uh, work that's under contract and we're really gonna see a surge in capability later into the year and delivering into next year. One of the biggest challenges is, it, 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 it's not that the administration was making slow decisions. It's just that a lot of the things they're trying to put back in production were 1970s and 80s systems that were produced in the 90s and have been sitting on shelves with production lines that have gone cold. So if you were going to restart production, you can't even restart production because the stuff that's in those weapons is old. Then yeah. you want to make some reasonable improvements, production improvements, capability improvements, cyber hardening. So I think the speed with which we're putting this new stuff under contract is, is pretty impressive. Yeah. What are the lessons learned, Jerry, from this process to help us do this better the next time, whether it's open architectures, you know, and again, allied standards we should be applying to this, you know, build a plant and Heidi Shu have been ferrying back and forth, actually working with our NATO allies to try to standardize some of this stuff behind the scenes. What are the lessons we need to be learning so that yeah. we don't get into this pickle the next time around? Yeah, yes. So, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, these um, PG, precision guided munitions or other kind of um, weapons were essentially, you say, handmade, you know, and they were, you know, uh, had a lot of obsolete parts in the production of gun. So restarting that is really, really hard. So I think the lessons um, we need to learn out of this are really three. The, the first is, you know, you've got to build some um, capacity for um, surge or for, um, you know, as part of your contracts for, you know, a system so that, you know, add cleanse that, you know, have con you pay contractors to keep, you know, certain um, the ability to ramp up production within six months, you know, and so you have that capacity to, um, uh, to grow, um, or, you know, you also put in cleanse for, you know, when production ends, keeping, um, you know, the um, technical data packages and uh, things on file, so it's easier to restart. Um, the, um, this, the second point is, is that I think we, we can do better to, um, we make the most exquisite systems to support our warfighters in the US, which is great. Um, but I think we have to think about manufacturing, um, you know, with good enough good enough uh, subparts, so you have more common commonality across the supply chain. So you don't. So it's it's not you know that when mom and pop shop goes out of business, you've got to reverse engineer and 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 pay uh, you know millions of dollars to requalify parts. So you, we've got to do a, a better job of building systems with more kind of uh, common parts. Uh, and the, the third point is around allies and partners. So uh, one of the ways you can build more latent or um, regular capacity is building second sources, right? Second sourcing was done a lot in the 70s and 80s, um, you know, for the Navy and the Air Force on munitions and the great engine wars as well for aircraft. Um, and that practice has largely gone away, you know, in the focus of, you know, kind of quest for efficiencies and cost. 
Um, but if you qualify second sources like they've done in uh, AMRAM with the um, the rocket motor it, it, uh, by Nano, a Norwegian company, you've got capacity that you can directly use um, when you need it. Um, and so, and you see this with the 155s, um, the U.S. has got contracts with com companies in uh, Bulgaria or, or to, to, to help build that capacity. So having having partners and allies kind of as part of that is, you know, existing or latent capacity is really worth the investment. Uh, and it's pretty modest, um, but can really pay dividends. How do you do this across 32 NATO nations, right? At least there's an organizing contra uh, construct there. There's an assistant secretary general for defense investment, somebody highly capable like a Wendy Gilmore, um, right. you know, Canadian diplomat, but also somebody who understands technology, uh, strategy, policy, right? I mean, kind of an, uh, almost an ideal person to have in that job. Um, but now you've got countries like Japan, Australia, New Zealand, India, Israel, right? Um, all of whom are allies and partners on one level or another. How do you get all of the cats on the same page yep. to create some foundational mechanisms through which we can do this? Because yeah. honestly, and I should put South Korea on that list too, right? If right. Hanwha and Korean companies were not producing ammunition as quickly as they are, some of our allies and partners wouldn't be able to give their old ammunition to the Ukrainians. It's a great, um, great point. And I think um, I, this really came out in our key studies in our report. Um, if you try to do a, a big multinational, multilateral program from the beginning, um, and, um, you know, it's very, very hard to do. Um, so like, for instance, NATO AGS was one of those where it's a cooperative development program uh, among 15 nations, and it took 27 years to get from requirements to, you know, IOC, uh, which is, you know, you know, not what you want. Um, and so F-35, on the other hand, was, you know, it took a while, but it had strong U.S. leader. It was, you know, it was a U.S. program that others came along. So if you're doing, um, so uh, one of the things that we came out in, in our paper is that it's better to focus um, um, initially on small bilateral or small group efforts. Um, and you see the success of this in NATO Sea Sparrow, which was a, initially four countries in the 1950s or 60s. And now that's up to 12 NATO countries and it's a very successful program. Uh, you see this with uh, three dealer radar, which was, um, the U.S. and Australia, and that, you know, and you see this with Next Generation Jammer, uh, where these had bilateral efforts then set the stage for more kind of a cooperative kind of efforts with other countries. So I would argue that, you know, you, you got to have very, very strong leadership. Um, and, uh, and it's got to be really, I think, focused partnerships that you can grow from um, are uh, the way to go. And you see that with, you um, in the case of Australia, um, with the effort for Next Generation Jammer, which really builds off of prior efforts uh, with the P8 program, which is a longstanding program that the Australians have participated in. So you really, you know, um, um, you know, you, you want to start small and focused, and, and then grow um, is what I, you know, because otherwise you you just set the stage for um, kind of uh, spectacular. Um, um, explosive efforts that, that, that are hard to pull off. But ultimately, we have the inefficient system that we have now because of everybody's political process, right? Mm -hmm. um, and which, which is fair, right? I mean, if you're a French yeah. missile maker, you don't want the American guy coming in there 
well, why is Dassault shielded? It's shielded because France wants to have a combat aircraft making capability of its own. And indeed, the challenge with it working with Airbus to develop the next pan-European airplane is uh, that Dassault thinks it can do a better job than Airbus when it comes to building a new uh, combat uh, aircraft. That replicate that across all 50 states, you know, 435 congressional districts, uh, right? Um, how, yeah. how, how do you, you know, you, you briefed staffers on this. Yeah. What, what's the appetite to do this with allies as opposed to protecting their own constituencies ultimately? You know, I, I've, I've found a lot of receptivity um, among staffers, you know, um, on the Hill. I think that, you know, they're, they're, they're looking for ways to, uh, you know, uh, build capacity and, you know, and to uh, get more um, other countries involved. So it's not just a U.S. supporting Ukraine situation, for example. Uh, and so there, there, there's a, you know, there, there's a significant appetite for it um, on Capitol. And as, as you well know, Vago, the overall environment for partnerships with allies right now is incredibly strong. Um, both the administration um, as well as Capitol Hill. I mean, there are those that, you know, ultimately when you're we're dealing with uh, members of Congress, their, their ultimate concerns are things that are kind of built in their district. And that, that's absolutely fair. So you're just trying to find the right balance, you know, you know, and I think that's why like showing the impact of uh, allied cooperation, uh, the industrial base impact is important to get done and and you know it's, it's shocking that it hasn't been done so because you can use that to say you know yes we need to build domestic production and capacity but it's not an either or situation this is all additive the focus is let's get um uh reduce chinese de dependencies on china um and other places that are uh, dangerous and focus on how can we collectively kind of do more uh, production wise when it comes to doing more production wise we are in the midst of a manufacturing revolution um, the quality of the tools whether they're cnc machines or additive and subtractive uh the barriers to entry are uh declining so you can uh, you know be a high-end furniture maker and have some actually very sophisticated equipment uh, that allows you to you know almost make aerospace grade uh parts this a lot of these machines are working 24-7, but a lot of them aren't working 24-7. Do, do we have a sense on what the latent manufacturing, you know, the, the Ukrainians certainly, Jerry, have harnessed this. Do, do we have a sense on sort of the capacity that exists across our alliance, much less in the United States, that actually could be harnessed to do this stuff uh, and do it in a distributed fashion, potentially? Yeah, I, I think we're kind of at the early early edge of that, to be honest. I mean, I think you've got, you know, I used to run when I was in government, these manufacturing innovation institutes were kind of, what, you know, on additive and things like that. And um, and they there is sort of a recognition of this, um, um, but uh, we're not kind of, um, uh, we're not quite there yet. I mean, and you saw this also in COVID when companies were kind of, you know, helping to support in any way. Um, I think... Um, and this is a lot of the argument of the Silicon Valley defense uh, crowd, you know, that we just bring in commercial tech. And I think there's there's um, there's a lot of applicability for that in manufacturing. Uh, you see that with kind of the focus on digital engineering um, and uh, 3D, you know, and uh, additive. Um, um, I, and I, I think that's moving forward. Um, you know, I, I don't think we're capturing it 
um, in the defense world is, is probably as robust as we can. Um, but, um, you know, I think that would, um, I think that's a, a good area to pursue. At different points in our history, we as a nation have either made the investment in things like dockyards, right? I mean, we don't have enough dry docks in the United States. Yeah. Europe isn't necessarily doing all that much better on that uh, count. Manufacturing facilities, you know, so there are some facilities that date, uh, we're making rounds in World War I uh, that we still are. Uh, and then there have been times when we've actually, in, uh, you know, haven't invested and said, hey, look, it's up, you know, it's particularly in the last 30 years. Well, it's up to industry to make that investment or, or you know, we in the United States are a little bit better. In Europe, it's, it really is pretty much up to the companies, right? If Rheinmetall wants to make more bullets, Rheinmetall has to invest in capability to build more bullets, and then the customer ends up buying it. From, yeah. from your standpoint, do we need either at a national level or even on an allied uh, level, sort of a chips or an infrastructure act where we're investing in the industrial infrastructure to have it in reserve because for the, in the, if for the sake of efficiency, we got rid of a lot and now we're finding we don't, we, we have neither the facilities nor the trained people to be able to do uh, some of these jobs, which we're finding are a little bit more, you know, like, well, hey, whoever knew welders would be in demand. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's it's a real delicate balance, Vago. You know, I think we I, we definitely went too far in the sense of you know um, uh, in letting a lot of keep industrial capacity and capabilities go offshore uh, in the in the in the you know in the efforts for free trade and you know efficiencies. Um, but you know, you sort of have to be you have to be sort of selective on kind of what. Um, what capacities we need to grow um, and what role government plays in that because uh, you know um, you know industrial policy you know has become you know something you know more in favor in the past you know five six years but you know there's a reason why it's not you know you know it, it, there's a lot it, it can be challenging um, to maintain so the reason why kind of rare earth processing left the US is it you know was less cost effective than buying it overseas. So bringing it back, you, you, you can create, you know, capability, but how can that compete on the global market pace, place? And so, you, so making these kind of investments, um, I, I think you have to be very careful and focused on them. Um, so uh, like areas like dry docks and the like, so the, the, those are very focused efforts. And I think you can do that through Defense Production Act or other tools, um, big efforts like chips, um, you know, they're, they're, you know that that's a, another way to do it, but you know you also get kind of ancillary um, uh, things when you do that kind of real industrial policy. You know the, the you know the politics gets in where you know you have the whole healthcare thing that was added to the chips bill and so on um, that you know some people disagree with or some people agree with. So, but it's not kind of you know so it it's you know making those big investments it, it involves, involves kind of politics, whereas if you focus it on kind of individual capability areas, that's how you can um, you keep it so that you're focusing on what do we need, no crap in the US um, and then, or, you know, for allies, other allies and partners, and then how do we build that and sustain it, you know, so it becomes, so it stays viable. So, you know, you know that's, so I, I'm more of a targeted kind of a view on this as opposed to big efforts because they, you know, they're just harder to manage. Over. And and what would be the most important targets? Well, I, I think, like I said, both um, 
the um, Trump and Biden administration did a great job at this. I mean, it, it, you know, in their reviews, the first is we got to get out of the China business. I mean, that means areas where we're in single or sole source um, uh, dependencies of China, uh, we need to be out. You know, and that that's you know that's you know specialty chemicals, rare earth processing, um, you know, parts of the microelectronics, uh, printed circuit boards, uh, and the like. And that's where a lot of investment has gone in the last five years for, you know, um, for a defense industrial base. Um, and, it, you know, castings and, and, and there are others like castings and forgings that, you know, you know, so it, it's and the the um, the both administration, the current administration is really kind of prioritizing like um, those investments, like the places where we know, no, uh, no crap need to develop those um, redevelop capacity. And so. Um, I'd say do, do more, keep doing that, and then, you know, just add kind of scale. I mean, because like the rare earth uh, efforts took five, four or five years to get going, um, and, you know, and we just don't, you know, we need to kind of, you know, do that on a, a bigger scale. And, and that, that's what's happening now, you know, when when I used to run um, the industrial base, my budget for the um, Title Three was $50 million a year. Uh, and uh, for the industrial base analysis and sustainment program was about $10 million a year. Now those programs in the, are both almost a billion dollars a year that were appropriated la last year. And then in their requests for 24 similar. So um, we're starting to make the real investments needed. Um, 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 but, you know, that, but it, it needs to kind of stay, I think, in a um, focused kind of manner rather than kind of really, really big efforts. You mentioned uh, rare earths uh, a couple of times in this, and obviously, right, yeah. the, the the Chinese have, uh, yeah, there's a reason why you're mentioning it now also, right, because the Chinese have said that whether it, yeah. it's uh, it's uh, uh, germanium and... Um, gallium, I think, right? Gallium, uh, exactly. Uh, you know, purely coincidental that they would pick those two <laughs> materials. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, you know, I'm sure it was a complete accident. Um, uh, and but for those who don't know, right, I mean, these are absolutely critical for uh, chip making uh, and, uh, and, um, and uh, electronics, uh, particularly high-end radar systems. Um, the challenge has been, and I'm not trying to impugn anybody in the big primes, but the big primes have actually fought this, uh, Jerry. Uh, they've said, look, it's much cheaper for us to keep getting them from the Chinese. Uh, you know, we can't do delays. You know, we, we know what we're getting in quality and all of this and making the case why we shouldn't be standing up a domestic capability because that domestic capability is likely going to be more expensive. I completely understand why any contractor is going to look for a cheaper source of production. But ultimately, what are the incentives we need to be using, the, the moving the cheese, as the Brits say, in order to get the mice going in the right direction, because you're not going to be able to make these changes if some of the biggest contractors, you know, want to say, hey, look, I'm going to keep buying my, you know, I'm a big user of titanium. I'm going to keep buying my titanium um, and titanium sponge from the Russians. Okay, but they're an adversary. Yeah, but okay, but I'm getting a good, you know, you see what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, some of these guys don't want to move off of these default settings because they're more expensive. So how, how do we incentivize the whole system to do what it is that we need it to do, I guess? Yeah. I mean, the the most uh, kind of direct way to do that is, you know, for Congress um, or the administration actually to, to change regulations and say, you know, we're only going to use uh, we're only going we're only going to use parts. These capabilities have to come from 
can't come from you know uh, prohibited countries you know you, you know essentially you know where you uh, that's you know a uh, very direct way and what they did with um uh huawei that was focused on a company but that kind of direction um and you know it, it's a heavy hand to do it that way but i mean that's one way that you, you can do it um that definitely changes the incentive structure um, you could also do it through, you know, um, a policy direction, you know, saying to, to, to come to industry, uh, this is where we need to, this is our goal, this is where we need to move, and we're willing to, um, uh, we're more interested in um, a um, in seeing this source uh, from the U.S. than we are in, in um, you know, cost is less important. So, but it is hard because a lot of the things you're talking about. I mean, even the primes don't really buy the rare earths. I mean, it's just it's just kind of far down the chain um, that um, you know that you uh, where this is. So you know, you know, so the incentive structure really needs to build in this way, build the industrial capacity, but also kind of uh, find um, help um, companies kind of um, um, market these tech, these capabilities and not just in for defense but for other markets because uh, you know a lot of these technologies are or capabilities are not kind of heavily defense they're very heavily commercial so you know getting that um that incentive structure right is hard but that's where we need to be heading Jerry, uh, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Always a pleasure uh, having you on the program uh, and keep up the great work, man. All right. Well, thanks. It's great being with you and keep up your great work. It's uh, your podcast is the dynamite. Thanks very much, man. Really appreciate it. All the best.